Well, this morning we will begin a study through the book of Philippians. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles there or your handheld gadgets, whatever the case may be. Philippians is another letter written by the Apostle Paul. This letter was written while Paul was in prison for the first time in Rome. Now, I don't do this kind of thing very much, but I'm going to give you just a few facts about this letter. This letter from the Apostle Paul is a bit unusual in that it's not like his other letters where he had to correct doctrinal issues with his readers, but rather in this letter, Paul writes sort of a thank you letter to the believers in Philippi for all of their support of him over the years. Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, visited the city of Philippi in AD 51, which was 11 years prior to Paul writing this letter. As I mentioned, Paul wrote this letter from prison, um, as he did Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. The interesting thing to me about this letter here being written from prison is that Paul mentions the word joy or rejoicing about 19 times in this letter. And I can't help but ask myself, what kind of letter would I write from prison if I were arrested today for preaching the gospel? What would be my attitude? I can honestly say that I'm not sure if I would use words like joy, rejoicing. <laughs> I'd probably be uh, more apt to complain, but who knows? The Spirit of the Lord leads us in, in many different ways. But Paul, of course, was under the leading of the Holy Spirit here when he wrote this letter. And today, I really believe that if we're open to it, when we pick up our Bibles, we will find that the same Holy Spirit, the one and only Holy Spirit, will speak to us as well. So, with all of this in mind, let's go ahead and, and jump on into it here. Verse 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So, Right off the bat here, we see who this letter is written to. It's written to people, saints, believers in Jesus Christ. And among those people are those that have the distinction of being bishops and deacons. Now, it's real easy to, to run in a certain direction with this verse here and say, hey, Here's how we need to set up church today. But again, I prefer to read this letter just how it is written. And, and again, that's to, to people and not to an institution. See, do you see the difference I'm pointing out here? The people of Philippi, the believers, along with their deacons and bishops, they received a letter from the Apostle Paul here. Today, you and me as people read a letter that is part of the Word of God to you and me. 
And rather than set up an institution, we need to read this letter and take it personally, apply it to our own lives. Now, this is just the kind of thoughts that come to me as I sit down and study the Bible, so bear with me for a minute. But what if me and you exchanged emails over, let's say, a a two-year period? And we discuss some facts about our friendship, our families, our work, whatever. Then let's say that 400 years were to go by and some people found some printed copies of our emails and they began to read them and to go over them line by line. There really wouldn't be much power or any great revelation in our emails because they were just from your mind to my mind and from my mind to your mind, right? But you see, remember, that's not the case as we study the Bible, as we study this letter from Paul here, because Paul's life, Paul's actions were divinely inspired in the fact that he was led by the Spirit to live as he had lived and to to write as he had written. And as we study the Word, we should do so with a desire to be impacted and to be led by the Holy Spirit ourselves. You see, what does God want from my life? What is His will for me? What is His will for you? What does He want from your life? Why are you here? What is the grand plan? And you know, all of this is contained in our Bibles, the Word of God. But we must be willing to seek it out. And if we use the Word of God just to set up institutions, just to make our churches, right? To set up denominations and non-denominations, for that matter. And we do not take the Word of God personally and apply it to our lives. Well, then we'll just end up a bunch of spiritually dry, non-spirit-led people that call ourselves a church. And that's not, is, that's not what God intends for us from his word. So in verse 1, that's what jumps out to me. This is written to people. And yes, amongst those people, there were those that God had given positions to do this or that. The believers in Philippi and all the early gatherings of people for that matter, they had bishops and deacons. For me, I stand and teach the word. For you, as you grow in in the Lord, there's a role for you within the body of Christ as well. It may not be a role that fits into a a local church as we know it today. But you see, the body of Christ needs the gift that you, through the Holy Spirit, have to offer. And We all need to seek the Lord and to live out the life that He desires for us to live, being led by His Spirit, right? Because we are His workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, to walk in these good works that God has prepared for us. 
And there's something for each one of us to do within the body of Christ. And that's why I'm, I'm stressing here this fact that this is written not to an institution, not to a church, but to people, to individuals. Now, people make up the church, right? When we gather together as believers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the church. We are that gathering right there. But we are individual members, and each one of us is gifted, and we, and we each need to step up and to step out and begin to work in the kingdom of God for his glory. Now let's move on. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, as we continue to take this letter personally, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the original Greek word for the word grace there is the word haris, right? And it means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. Okay, so that's what grace is, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. That's what God gives to us in our hearts. Joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. Now, does the world we live in give us this? No. Does our jobs give us this? Do, uh, do other people always give us these things? No. But God and Jesus Christ do. You see, there is a difference in what is out there in the world and what is to be in here in your heart. The other word we see there in verse 2 is the word peace. This is the Greek word arena, okay? And it means tranquility, harmony, and felicity. Again, only the things that we get when we focus on God. That's what's being talked about here, right? We can't focus on the world around us and get grace and peace. You see, most people in the world want to have pleasure. They want to have delight. They want to have harmony and tranquility. But they look for it in all the wrong places. They look for it in outward things or material things, right? But it's not to be found there. It's only found in the things of God. And God loved us so much that he gave that answer that we need it. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ and our faith in him. And Jesus instructed for us to be rich toward God, right? Not chasing after the material things of this world. You see, the world actually stands in defiance of God, right? But when the world falls apart, the world blames God for it, don't they? But God has told us plainly in his word that the things of this world are not good. The things of this world will not last. And that is why we need to let go of our grip on them and seek the things of God, which are, of course, eternal. 
And it is also internal. You know, that's where these are the things that we should be focused on, the things that are spiritual. Remember, we as Christians are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And if we walk by sight, in other words, we are always led to react based on what we see and hear, then we will not experience true pleasure, delight, harmony, and tranquility, which is God's grace. But when we walk by faith in the unseen things of God, we will have all of this and more. And I say more because Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And that's the key right there. Is God's power working in you? Right? Because far too often we look at what goes on around us rather than becoming devoted to spending time in prayer and in the Word of God and then stepping out and being doers of the Word of God. Right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now that might sound familiar to you. That's from the psalmist. And that describes the man of God that is focused on God, right? He meditates day and night in the law of the Lord. That's what's on your mind. You've been renewed in the spirit of your mind. You've been born again. And you see, we will bring forth fruit and we will have true prosperity, the prosperity of the soul, that is, only when we are focused on the things of the Lord and we keep our eyes off of the things of the world. See, we are to tread lightly through this world. Of course, there are things in this world that we need for our daily sustenance, right? Our living. And God tells us in his word in Matthew 6 that he knows and understands this fact. But we can't search for happiness in the abundance of the things we obtain. We only find it when we turn our eyes upon the things of God and let go of everything else. Moving on here, verse 3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul was very appreciative of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And I tell you what, I am too. I'm so thankful that God has given other believers in my life for me to call out to and to find help and find strength. You see, fellowship is so vital for us 
again, we all have lives to live, right? Bread to provide for our families. We have to work for shelter and clothing and such. But we must remember the importance of fellowshipping with other believers. Paul felt and he knew their their fellowship with him even though he was in prison. You see, because our fellowship is in the gospel. Our fellowship is in what the Lord has done for us. And I give thanks to God for each one of you here this morning. And I hope that you know that you are not alone in your walk of faith. Paul goes on to say to them in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So it says partakers of grace. Paul knew that he was not above anyone else in the Lord. Peter made this same type of proclamation in 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe it is, where he said he was a fellow laborer in the gospel. See, and Paul knew that he was one of us, and his confidence for the Philippians was not in them, but in the fact that the Lord would continue the good work that he, by his Holy Spirit, was doing in them. And we, too, can take confidence in the fact that God has begun a good work in us and will complete that work. If we've surrendered to him as Lord, then God indeed will work all things together for good. Now, I do stress that word if there. If we have surrendered to him as Lord. You see, because it's real easy for people to uh, make a, prof- a profession of faith, right? And uh, maybe to walk down an aisle or you know, feel the emotions of, of good worship music and, and be inspired. And, but there's far more to it than that. We must forsake all else. We must surrender our lives to Jesus Christ completely, every aspect of it. Then, and only then, is He Lord of your life. But again, be careful. Don't make the mistake, right, of looking in all the wrong places for what God is doing. Because Scripture tells us that man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And that's our tendency in this flesh that we now carry around, is to walk by sight and not by faith. But again, Paul is saying that he knows that even though he is in prison, in chains for preaching the gospel, he knows that others are still standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that gives him comfort. Now, before I move on too quickly, let me just expound a little more on verse 6 there. The Lord begins a good work in people after they come to him. They turn from living a life led by the flesh 
to a life led by his spirit. They place their faith completely in Jesus. He begins a good work in them. Now, that work, though, is not the same for all of us. You see, God is far bigger than that. What he will work out by his spirit in your life will not be identical to what he is working out in me. He has a plan for each one of us, though, and he desires to work out that plan within us. You see, too often we as the church place God in a, in a very small box where we have him only able to work within a structure that we have established, right? We build our churches and you know, we, we make the landscape all pretty and we build our buildings and we bring people in and we say, this is our church, okay? Right? Our gatherings may have a person that leads us in song, right? A person that teaches the word, a person or two or three or more that help in the children's ministry. Um, but my point here, however, is that we don't limit what God can do. You see, there are giftings from God that are necessary in the body of Christ that only you can fulfill. Only I can fulfill, right? And you know, there can only be so many things done within a, a church building, a church gathering. But you see, more and more gatherings are needed all over the place. See, if you feel called to teach God's Word, for example, do it. Start a Bible study in your neighborhood or some other place, or come start a Bible study down the street here in my neighborhood. Right? If you feel called to do it, you step out and do it. That is the body of Christ. There will be people that will come to your Bible study right down the street from me here on my same street, that won't come here. We've got to reach the lost with the biblical, true gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? If you feel called to sing song of, songs of praise in the presence of others, do it. The Holy Spirit will work all of this out. The Holy Spirit's not limited by the place you go on Sunday mornings. The world out there at large needs the gospel. Go and give it to them. Sure, bring them here to hear the teaching of the word if you feel led, but allow the Spirit of the Lord to work in and through you as well. Don't just sit back and, and become complacent. Be a doer of the word yourself. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul says here, Man, I love you guys so much, I wish I could be with you. Verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense 
till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You see, we really should abound in love, which is what the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me regarding this ministry that he has given me, hence the reason I called it Abounding Love. But what we should be loving, what we should be doing, I should say, is that we should be growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, right? So that we can, we should love knowledge. We should love discernment. Why? So that we can approve excellent things. God has excellent things for you and for me right? And again, I'm speaking about inward things. He wants us to have a sincere walk of faith. He doesn't want us being hypocrites, living like the world and professing that we are Christians. You might need to let that sink in. He doesn't want us living like the world and professing to be Christians. He wants us filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are found only in Christ Jesus. We are to walk in holiness. Christ in us is our only hope. So Paul, again, is in prison, and some believers, when they see bad things happen to what they call good people, they can say things like, Wow, why did God let this happen to them? Wasn't Paul doing a good work here? Why is he suffering in prison? But Paul tells them in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So there we see Paul's love for the gospel. Paul's calling in Jesus Christ. And you know, we sit here today as beneficiaries of that gospel Because men like Paul gave all they had to see it go forth. The truth of Jesus Christ is not dead and buried. The truth of Jesus Christ is alive and well. And today, still, bad things happen to good people in this world. Jesus said of the Father in heaven that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You can find that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 45. But Paul says here, hey, it's all good, don't worry about me. And then in verse 13, right, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So there again we see how things we go through in this life can have influence on others. Now, let's not confuse this, though. Right? The Bible says in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. So it's not as if I have to impress others right, on how I handle the hardships of my life. You see, I may completely fall apart during a difficult time in my life. But my strength is not found in my ability to have a positive attitude 
or to show others how emotionally strong I am. My strength is in Christ alone. He is the solid rock upon which we all should stand. And if people see us strong during trials, then they're not seeing our strength, but rather they're seeing Christ in us. Verse 14 continues, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So again, a a very positive outcome, right? More people speaking about Jesus is, you know, is how it should come about, right? And people do speak about Christ in various ways. Paul even saw that in his life. As he continues in verse 15, he said, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? See, here was Paul's attitude about that, right? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. So Paul's perspective here has been passed down to you and me this morning through the Word of God. Jesus is the bottom line. Say what you will about how I speak about him or or about how I don't speak about him, right? He will use each one of us in his own way if we will just commit our lives to him. And Paul says that that was the bottom line of his life, that Christ would be preached and magnified in his body. Jesus first and everything else below him. Is that the attitude of your heart? Verse 21, one of the most famous verses of Scripture. For me to live is for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, a Christ-centered life is always a win-win. In the good times, praise God for Jesus Christ. And in the bad times, praise God for Jesus Christ. His love endures forever. Paul is the same one that wrote to the Romans and said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He said, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether we live or die, 
If we are committed to Christ, then we can truly say it is all good. Why? Because to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's not about this place, folks. It's not about the best life now. We're just passing through. Then verse 22 says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming again to you, or by my coming to you again. So not only was Paul sincere in his life, devoted to Christ, but he genuinely cared for those that he ministered to. He desired to see them grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. He cared, too, about the way they lived out their lives as followers of Christ. Verse 27 says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now let me ask you a rhetorical question here. Do you think that verse 27 there describes the body of Christ in America, the church in America? Is the conduct of the church in America worthy of the gospel of Christ? Do we stand fast? In other words, completely committed in one spirit, one mind, do we strive together for the faith of the gospel? I personally don't see that we do. We seem to stand somewhat strong on political issues and such. But striving for the faith of the gospel is the question here. Are we standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as we stand for our political issues and things like that, right? Paul tells them in verse 28 to not in any way be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Now that word perdition there in verse 28 is a word that means destruction. So as we go ahead again and read verses 27 and 28 together, they say, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and, and that from God. So, you and me, conducting our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing fast in one spirit and one mind, striving for the faith, and not being afraid of doing so, this will be a sign to others of their destruction, but to us 
a proof of our salvation. You see, there does need to be some proof that you are saved. There must be some evidence in your life of your faith in the gospel. And when there is, what happens is is others take notice and they see the difference between them and you. And they begin to realize, hey, wait a minute, they're on a path of righteousness. I'm on a path of destruction. We must stand as witnesses of Jesus Christ and of the true biblical gospel. Otherwise, people perish. You see, there is no other remedy for sin, no other way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. So we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not easy to stand as a witness. And verse 29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, you don't find that in too many Bible promise books, do you? We have to suffer for Christ, right? Really? I I thought it was all about health and wealth always. I I thought I could have my best life now. Unfortunately, much of churchianity, American Christianity, believes that kind of thing today. But it's not so. Not according to Scripture when we read it in context. And we'll conclude today with verse 30. It says, Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So, look, Jesus came, he suffered and died. The disciples that he chose, they suffered and died. Paul suffered and died. Christians have been beheaded for their faith. Even still today in parts of the world, the church is underground because of persecution. You and me have it so easy. We are so blessed today. And up until this very moment right now, we are still free to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've come to the gospel and you've been set free, You've been born of the Spirit, so live like it, right? Don't keep the gospel all bottled up. Don't keep your Bible on the shelf getting dusty. Live what the Word of God says. Love what the Word of God says. And God will empower you to do so and to let the gospel be known. See, God is for you. Nothing will be against you if you walk by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you don't walk by sight. You live out, again, what the Word of God says in every aspect of your life. God bless.